0: I want us to think on the concept of sanctification. Today is an introductory process of getting the thoughts flowing on what that means so that we can spend some summer weeks here uh, walking through uh, a survey of how it, the process of change unfolds in our Christian walk. Uh, so, today I want us to ask the question what is sanctification? All right, so start thinking of your answer. Uh, it doesn't have to be a paragraph. You open some systematic theologies, and, and just literally a definition of sanctification is multiple sentences, extended phrases. It's a whole paragraph. You don't have to do that. Um, it's almost more like a word association game. Picture a big whiteboard, and we write this big word, sanctification, in the middle, and now we just want to start drawing lines off from that word and putting ideas there because there are a lot of directions to go when we think of sanctification. Uh, So I want to kind of fill up that whiteboard with some ideas and then we'll look at our doctrinal statement to just see how some of those ideas fall into an order that helps us think about this change process so that as we study it, we realize this big word sanctification that you're rarely going to hear outside of church walls um, is actually the the stuff of everyday Christian living, all right? So start us off with any any idea that you're connecting to sanctification. If it sounds really bizarre, I might ask you a question about how you're drawing that line. But I have a feeling we can get a lot of words here that that are going to make some sense to us. Roy, you want to start us off?
1: A life trajectory. Moving towards knowing, walking, and glorifying Jesus.
0: A life trajectory. Now, I have an idea, but explain why you chose that word picture.
1: It's a movement. It's a path. It's a conversation on going through life. It's not a destination to which you arrive. It is a goal that you pursue.
0: Okay. And if, you, and if you picture trajectory, and Roy and anyone can ask this, we're looking at the general process of growth. What might that allow for in our Christian lives? Uh, we're picturing this. Generally, we're starting here and we're heading up here. What might that line look like? <laughs> yeah. Most of us aren't thinking, my Christian life from faith in Christ till today has been this perfectly straight line of constant improvement and maturity for most of us you know we're getting a little seasick thinking back on our journey it's like the up and the down and a little bit higher and a little bit of drop and maybe up 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 man we had some good and that's okay it's a trajectory and so that's a that's a helpful word picture general story is i'm changing i'm improving but it's a process, uh, and Roy added to that in his clarification, kind of a, a process that may take a long time, indeed, all of our lives. All right, what else? A word, a phrase? Setting apart. Setting apart. Um, that's uh, kind of a very, that, let's like starting at the beginning. What does this actual word mean? Um, and that idea of sanctifying has to do with setting it apart. Uh, you, you could in a sense, uh, in a very spatial sense, you could sanctify the chocolate chip cookies, right? Um, You make them cookie dough, you bake them, now they're they're piled up there, but you set them apart and you tell the kids, no, we're not eating those till after dinner, or that's for when company comes. So that idea of setting it apart, regardless of purpose here, we're taking sanctify out of moral kind of concepts, and you just say, no, that's... That's for something else. That's reserved for something else. That helps us think of what set apart means. So when you read in your Old Testament, either the word sanctify or God says to the people of Israel, you know, I I have chosen you and set you apart. Well, that means there was some purpose. There was some reason in God's mind for doing that, just like there was a reason in mom's mind for saying, no, those cookies are set apart. So that set apart in just the kind of a technical definition, here's what the word means, that's helpful to us. Because when we start thinking of the Christian life, when we start thinking of light versus darkness, we begin to understand why God would use this word of they're set apart. Or even kind of tracing back the idea of church, the ecclesia, the called out ones, that's a partner word with sanctification. Uh, they're set apart. They're called out. Uh, all right, what else? That's good. What other words come to mind? Bible words? Practical words? Yeah, Paul?
1: Uh, war comes to mind. And just thinking of um, 1 Thessalonians 4, three. this will guide you, even your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. I uh, think of 1 Peter to um, 11, uh, the beloved I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of your flesh, which wage war against your soul, Um, that that sanctification process isn't simply uh, leaving from, but that what we're departing from is actually warring against our very soul um, in that effort towards sanctification. And now my tablet is making noises, sorry. Um, yeah.
0: So, the idea of war, um, what do the, those verses um, abstain from the passions and the worldliness basically that is warring against the soul? So, here's this language of battle. What does that mean for you in, in daily living? Yeah, Caitlin.
1: Would make me think of the Ephesians um, six ten through twenty passage, putting on the armor of God um, to war against the things we shouldn't be doing.
0: Good. So I, I want us to realize that in this in this study of sanctification, there's a there's a lot of like theological nuance that we, if we're not sticking to Scripture, we can kind of drift into a, a misunderstanding. And one misunderstanding of sanctification is that it's a very passive process. Uh, and so there are entire movements or denominations that would embrace sanctification, but they would kind of say it, it, it just happens. You know, this is what God does. And so you, you could go back through early American history and you, you'd find this, what was called the Keswick movement. And so you can still go to a town of Keswick, New Jersey, um, and the, the Keswick's were, had this kind of a, a slogan that it's been reduced to, let go and let God. It's kind of like, God will take care of it. If, if God wants me to change, he'll change me. You know, yes, we follow the Lord, but, you know, I'm going to make mistakes. And, and if God wants me to change, he's going to do it. It's not like totally wrong. Yes, God is going to change you. Uh, he's promised to do so. But, but we're not totally passive. Uh, because these scriptures that tell us to war against the passions of the flesh, to arm ourselves against the temptation of the devil, makes us realize, wait a minute, th- this, this sanctification is not just passive, it's active. Uh, I do something. And so most of what we know of moral boundaries in the New Testament is in the form of a command. God's saying, do this, don't do that which means I have a choice to make. I have to choose what is right. I have to know in my head and by my conversion that I am sanctified, I'm set apart to God, but I have to act on that every single day. The New Testament letters are often summarized by this mantra, be or become what you are. God has called you to be a saint. He has set you apart. He says, You belong to me. I've washed you. Now become that. Continue to become more and more a person who is washed from sin, who is warring against it. Become the saint that I've called you to be. So it's an active process of obeying all these guidelines that God has given us to show us this is the path of righteousness. Walk here. Here's how you love your wife, here's how you parent your kids. Here's how you deal with conflict. Here's how you deal with temptation. So sanctification is active. Uh, We have our obedience to carry out as an act of worship. Um, And yet there is a passivity in the sense that God is ultimately doing something. So we we have these two ideas, and we don't want to say it's all of us, and I just have to do better, and, you know, I had a hard week this week, and I just need to do better. No, our sanctification rests in this power source of God's spirit in us. So the activity is not all of us. I don't just do better on my own strength this week. But nor do I say, oh, well, that was a bad week. I was short with my wife and short with the kids, and my work ethic wasn't great at the office, but, oh, well, God didn't change me. Maybe this week, no, it's not totally passive and it's not totally active. It's this unique combination. Uh, We don't usually like to talk about cooperating with God on something because we think, wait a minute, no, it's all of God. And it is, and we'll look at another word where that's imperative. But in sanctification, there is an allowance theologically for this concept of a synergy, of a working together. Philippians uh, makes it clear that we are to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. Well, how do we do that? Well, because it says it is God who works in you to will and do his good pleasure. So when we talk about doing, active sanctification, it's rooted still in God's work. We're simply working out For all to see what God has worked in. God worked it in to us, and now we're supposed to let that process happen and work it out. So we might say from Ephesians uh, that we should be filled with the Spirit so that we can live the way we should with others. Well, okay, God has worked the Spirit into us. He's working his good pleasure through his Spirit in us but we're supposed to yield to that work so that it's worked out. Uh, yes, glory be to God. He's the one that enables it. And yet our response to God's work is this worship of obedience and yielding. It's our active uh, participation in sanctification. All right, that's a lot said just on that concept of war. But uh, it reminds us that sanctification isn't going to happen this week. You're not going to get any better Um by not trying at all, by not being immersed in God's word, yielded to the spirit. You'll be the same cranky parent you were last week, the same, you know, hard to live with spouse, the same whatever. Um, if we want to change, we're going to have to recognize this is war. All right. What other words can we connect to sanctification? What else? Daniel? I'd a- say thankfulness and knowing God. All right. Knowing God uh, and Thankfulness. Uh, we could go to Romans one. We mentioned it the other week too. That there's something about that thanksgiving for what we know of God that is a, a a why in the road. You're either recognizing who God is and what He has said about Himself and being amazed by that, or the other trajectory in Romans one is I've seen that, but I reject it. Um, And I'll put man at the top of this food chain instead of God. Uh, And it doesn't end well. Uh, All right, what else? More thoughts? Paul? I was going to say, work of the
1: Spirit, and you kind of just hit on it. I was thinking of Galatians 3 uh, 1. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? having begun by the Spirit, so salvation occurs by a work of the Spirit, and they readily admit that, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Um, And just kind of the opposite of the passive version of sanctification is the opposite, which is a lawkeeper's sanctification, which believes that my works are primary in the effort of sanctification versus that God enables and empowers work through His Spirit, it's kind of a different, different pitfall of right. the same, same struggle.
0: Yeah, there's ditches on either side of the road, and a lot of times we get real confident on here's what I think, and we start drifting more and more to that ditch, and we have to realize, no, I might, be, I might feel like I'm really on track in my Christian life, but I might be leaning more and more on my own understanding here and need to get back to, wait a minute, don't be so foolish as to think, that your sanctification is being accomplished in the flesh. Um, Paul's rhetorical question, How were you? is that how you were saved? Obviously not. Well, then why do you think it's so different that the Christian life would suddenly be all on you? Uh, God wants to claim all of saving power, and then he leaves the rest to you. Um, that would be a mistake as well. All right, other words, phrases? Transformation. Transformation.
1: Clarification and expansion on knowing God. We, most of my life it's been presented in brief form as academic knowledge of God. But I think that there's uh, equally a, a relational knowing of God that's important, though I don't know what it
0: all means. Right. Yes, we can tend to stereotype type that idea of knowing God. Um, I think if you go to like Philippians 3 and you see Paul saying... You know, I've done academics, but I want to know Christ in his suffering and in the fellowship. And all. so I, I think you're right to make sure we clarify that knowing God, we're not just talking, oh, I know he's omnipotent, omnipresent, and sovereign, and this and that and the other. Um, it, it's truly that understanding of who he is and how that affects my relationship with him, how that affects my life, why I could willingly. You know, present my body as a living sacrifice. Um, who's worthy of that? And so that that's what we mean by knowing so that we're yeah we're not talking mere academics or um, yeah, some kind of surface knowledge that could be written down on paper. Uh, we're talking about the experience of uh, you know, a lifelong friendship where you could say, listen, I, I trust this person. I know them. I know what they, how they respond. I know who they are. Well, that's what we're talking about, about the God of heaven who has brought us into his family. Other key words?
1: I mean, sanctification, like, <clears throat> ultimately, uh, Jesus Christ dying for sins, paying for that debt, um, you know, I think that,
0: Yeah, it's pretty sanctified. Yeah, uh, I'm glad you bring that up. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, I don't want to muddy the waters in your thinking of sanctification, but we're right to realize that sanctification does kind of have a point in time use. The word is used in such a way to describe our initial washing from sin, which we would call conversion. Uh, before faith in Christ, we were dead in sin. Um, That doesn't mean we we looked like the worst human being in history. It just meant that nothing we were doing was done to the glory of God. Um, And so a Pharisee could look like the best person in Israel doing all these good things, and yet that righteousness, and it's in quotes, Uh, was a self-righteousness. Paul would say this about the Jews. Uh, Rejecting the righteousness of Christ, they went about trying to have their own righteousness that they could measure by saying, here's the law, and I've kept that, and I've kept that, and I've kept that. And Jesus said, well, yes, you've kept that on the outside, but in your heart, you weren't sinless. Um, And so, there, there, there's a righteousness and a sanctification that comes at our conversion when we recognize the only righteousness that I can have that would please God is not my own, it's the righteousness of Christ. The perfect life he lived that's counted to my record. That's, it's logged on my account by faith. I believe that Jesus is the righteous son of God and by believing, that righteousness counts as mine. In that moment of faith in Christ, which is obviously a turning from sin and self-righteousness to the righteousness of Christ, in that moment, we are said to be sanctified in an instantaneous process. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, verse 9, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Not an exhaustive list, but it sure fits Corinth. Uh, In the history of the New Testament church, Corinth had its Marquee issues, and these are some of them. So here's all these descriptions of a sinful life that clearly is against God, and it says these people will not inherit the kingdom of God. They're sinners. Verse 11, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So there is this washing, sanctifying, and justifying that happened when they came to faith in Jesus Christ. When when these people recognized, there's a reason why I live in this kind of sin. It's because of who I am. I am enslaved to sin. I am dead in sin. But Jesus can free me from sin and he can make me alive to righteousness instead of being dead in sin. So you're washed, you're sanctified, you're justified. But this use of sanctification and just a couple of other references remind us that there is this initial washing or cleansing, which is part of the idea of sanctification. Gary told us there's the idea of being set apart, but there's also an important element of holiness, of, of cleanliness, not like clean, I don't have germs, but cleanliness in that Old Testament sense of the the ceremonial cleansing. Uh, This was set apart, but in order to show it was set apart for the use of the temple or to God, as opposed to your own household dishes, they were ceremonially washed. Well, here, Paul is building on that washing, cleaning, and setting apart for a special use to describe our salvation experience, that moment when I recognize Jesus is Savior and Lord, I repent of sin, I believe in him, and the Bible says I was washed. Whatever you were before, whatever guilt the devil tries to threaten you with, whatever guilt you feel because of your own shame for the things that you've done and the life that you lived, it's, it's washed off just like dirt would be washed off a dish. You're washed in that moment. Uh, you're set apart in that moment, sanctified. And then he adds this other element of justified. Well, that makes us stop and think because we were thinking sanctification and we were thinking about the process of change that happens in your Christian life. Now we have this little parenthetical to remember, okay, but we can use sanctified, washed, set apart to describe The initial conversion, our initial act of that moment of salvation. Uh, So it's best now that we qualify our word sanctification. And generally, we talk about a positional sanctification. When I was changed from what I once was a sinner to a saint, a believer, a follower of Jesus, not perfect. But set apart, the word applies there. In my position before God, he looks at me at the moment of my salvation. He looks at me as what the Bible calls a saint. Read the opening to a number of the letters in the New Testament, and it's like to the saints at Corinth. And you think, where? There are not many people in Corinth, even the Christians that we would call saints, by our kind of colloquial definition, we think of saints as being like these perfect people. But that's not the way God uses the word, except in the fact that it carries the potential for what we will become. He uses the word for what unfolds in the rest of the book of Corinthians? All these problems Paul's addressing, saying, You need to fix this. You need to change this. This isn't like Christ. You need to grow. You need to. So he has this whole laundry list of their troubles and their struggles, the war that's going on, but he says, You're saints. Your, your position before God will never change. When you've put faith in Christ, that means Christ is so sufficient. In his righteousness, when it's, when it's applied to my account, God always looks at my account. He goes through his record and he finds my name. And I may have been short with my kids that week. I may have lied to somebody. I may have been lustful. But when God looks at my account, he sees not my record of failure in this up and down of sanctification. He sees the perfect record of Christ. And he says, your position is you are righteous and fit for heaven. That's the value of Jesus. That's what we talk about by saying, I rest in the work of Christ. It's because of these technical terms, these big theological ideas that have incredible practical meaning for us. They give us the great hope of the Christian life because If you've ever struggled with sin or a particular sin, when lust keeps getting the best of you or your short temper keeps getting the best of you, when your impatience with your children gets the best of you and you start thinking, what's the use? I am such a wretch. I'm such a miserable parent. The devil's like, good. Now I've got them thinking that it's all about them. I've got their eyes off Christ and it's only on them. And listen, I understand we should hate our sin. We should be sorry for our sin. But the great hope is we look at Christ and we realize, wait a minute, that's who I am. That's the kind of righteousness God has worked into me that I should be working out. And so what it should do is make us belt on our sword and pick up our shield and say, okay, the fight is on. Here we go again. And so... We're not singing it today, but the next time we sing of our great high priest in heaven, and when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. I look to Christ and I realize, wait a minute, that's the righteousness that is mine. That's the righteousness that I can live out. So positional sanctification I am secure in who Christ says I am. His record is mine, and that doesn't change. This is the hope of what we call assurance of salvation. How do I know that if I have a rough week this week, and and I'm not perfect, and I die, that I'm still going to be allowed into heaven when there's all this sin that I've done this past week? I haven't loved God with all my heart, and all my strength and all my mind. But standing before God is, is not going to be about my record of righteousness. It's, the question will be, have you put faith in Christ and his record of righteousness? Positional sanctification. We're permanently set apart from sin and to God and therefore identified as saints. How do I know that? Well, 1 Corinthians and other places says, you were once this, but you are washed and you are sanctified. Now, maybe we need to think about justification just for a minute. Uh, if, If we would say sanctification is the promised work of God, we could go to Philippians 1. He who began a good work in you will complete it in the day of Jesus Christ. The promise of God is that he is working on you and he's helping you to change or to be transformed as Gary defined it. Justification is probably helpfully defined not as an ongoing work, but as a legal act where in a moment the gavel comes down at the judge's bench and that crack on the wood echoes through the courtroom. And something has just been decisively declared. You see, justification, practically we say, it's just as if I had never sinned. Well, that's a good start. It's helpful in thinking of that just idea, justification, just as if I'd never sinned. But it's as if I had never sinned, because the reality is we have sinned. And whether we even recognize it or not, the Bible says it's so. So we know we have sinned. So what is this meaning of it's just as if I hadn't sinned? It's because justification is the judge's decision. He, he decides that he will declare you to be righteous. He's not saying you are. He's not saying you don't have any guilt. He's not saying you stand before him as the defendant and you're claiming innocence. That's not what justification is saying. Oh, you're innocent, so no punishment for you. No, in that courtroom, the judge is saying you're clearly guilty. But because of the intercession of someone else, because someone else has taken your place, that punishment has been suffered. God's wrath has been poured out on that someone else. The substitute, I declare you to be forgiven and righteous. And it's a legal act. This is why 1 John would say God is faithful and just to forgive our sin if we confess. Because God is no longer God. He's he's not the God of the Bible. If he's going to hold our sin against us when Christ has paid for it already. But because he is just, he looks at the record of Christ and he says, this person is claiming the record of Christ by faith. I declare you to be a saint. Justification is a legal act, and in that moment you are justified, as our text in 1 Corinthians 6 says. Then sanctification progressively kicks in. So we have positional sanctification, which we could say is is lumped in with justification. Such were some of you, but you were washed, sanctified, initially cleansed and set apart for God— and justified, declared to be righteous. Now what? That's that moment. For some of you, you were a child when you came to faith in Christ. Some of you had lived a good number of years before you recognized, I can never do enough to please God. Only Christ can do that. I need his righteous record. I need him to forgive my sin. You you may have been an adult. Whenever it was... Those things happened. You were washed, sanctified, justified. From now on, from that moment until we see God, Christ comes back, or we die and go to be with him, we're in this progressive sanctification, which is most often what we're talking about when we talk sanctification. You pick up a book that's talking about sanctification. It's probably not about your conversion story, it's probably about this battle, this struggle with the flesh. Galatians chapter 5, the, the flesh wants to do this and the spirit is prompting you to do that and and you're torn. Now, to bring that down to, to real life, you know, your spouse meaningly, on purpose, accidentally, we don't know, does something that bothers you and and in your flesh, you're annoyed by that. Don't they recognize I've had a long day and how can they keep doing it? And you're having this struggle of the flesh just wants to react to it. And the spirit is saying, can, can, can you not cover this in love? Like, where is your patience and your long suffering? So you're being torn in these two directions. That's sanctification. That's that moment where God is trying to work in you his Righteousness by his spirit so that in that moment you would deny self and exercise Christ likeness. Uh, That's the progressive sanctification. God is increasingly conforming us to the image of Christ, meaning more and more in the moments of temptation, we make the choice that Christ made. We choose out of worship. To do what God wants us to do, believing that's the best path of life. So progressive sanctification, this ongoing change. Romans chapter 8 describes this for us. It follows up a familiar verse that we don't often think of as the story of sanctification, but it is. Romans 8:28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Well, that is a great promise. For those who love God and are called by him, set apart, God will work all things for our good. All these things in our lives will be worked for good according to his purpose. Now, that's a great promise, but we kind of have to know what is his purpose. If this was not a benevolent God, if this was a God of the the animists or the Buddhists or the Hindu, this could be a God that may have malevolent purposes and he's out to get you. And so I might not want him working all things according to his purpose. But the God of the Bible, when he says, I'm working everything, for your good according to my purpose, then defines what his purpose is in the next verse. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he, the son, might be the firstborn among many brothers. So what is the purpose of God that then dictates how he will work everything for our good? His purpose is not, Primarily, your well being. His purpose is not, I want to make sure everything in your life is perfect so that you live that life of luxury and ease like someone in the royal family that has everything taken care of them from birth to death. That's not his highest purpose, though we can argue that God is completely out for our good. He's told us that in this verse. But his purpose is to conform us to the image of his son. This is why we can, in, with the eye of faith, look at cancer or debilitating disease or the loss of a loved one or, or, or any of the multitude of groanings and hardships that we face in this lifetime. And then come to this verse and believe that God is working those things that we hate because they are the effect of sin and its curse in this world. We hate those things and we hate the sorrow that accompanies them. But we can know that they are being worked for our good because they are shaping us to become more like Christ. And according to this passage, that image of Christ is what God is after. God is so pleased with his beloved son that he is going to make all of us into his image. He will be the firstborn of all these that follow looking just like him. God wants the character of Christ in you this week. And so that familiar phrase from that 100-year-old novel, what would Jesus do, that, that question, is kind of valid. Um, it does kind of work to help us think through sanctification. God wants me to think and have the mind of Christ so that I will act like Christ. He wants me to look like him. He wants his whole church to look like Christ. And so he's going to keep on helping us grow and he's equipped the church with all kinds of gifts so that we would come to the unity of the faith and that we would grow into the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, Ephesians 4 tells us sanctification, this ongoing work. And just be reminded, Roy mentioned it earlier, that sin is never fully eradicated from the life of the believer. So we're not saying you're going to reach some kind of sinless perfection. If you work really hard for a couple years, you'll be done with battling against sin. You'll reach some kind of level of, boy, you're a really good church person, or you'll be so good and perfect that you could be a pastor of our church, right? Because they're the perfect people, of course. No, it's not the way it works. Nobody reaches some kind of level of perfection, some some holiness measure where you're suddenly done. You no, know, that happens when you're done with this life on earth, and we're glorified. That final. Kind of step of sanctification where we shed this body of corruption and we receive a new body that's incorruptible, untainted by sin. And now we're ready for eternal life and joy of heaven because heaven would not be heaven if you still struggled with irritation toward people and still struggled with lust, or still struggled with anger. No, that's not heaven. That's that's still the struggle and the groaning of this life of sanctification. But sin and, and its temptations are not eradicated for the believer, but provision for victory is made through the work of Christ and the indwelling Spirit. True believers will cooperate with the Spirit, in the conflict with the remnant of the flesh by reckoning themselves dead to sin and alive to righteousness. All that is telling us that we have choices to make this week. And don't be confused. Uh, It is a choice. In this battle with sin, the Bible has told us that if we are believers in Jesus and the Spirit is ours, then we are now... No longer slaves to sin, but we are now willing slaves to righteousness. So that tells us that you don't have to sin. It's not just a foregone conclusion. You can't say, well, I couldn't help it. That's just not true. The Bible says that's, that was once true of you in unbelief. You were enslaved. You were shackled to sin. Oh, you were free in a sense, much like a prisoner in an old dungeon, maybe had 15 foot of chain. He was free to wander around that cell, but those shackles eventually caught and he could go no further. You were not free to delight in Jesus. You were not free to hate sin. You were not free to love God with all your heart. You were incapable of that because you were in bondage to sin. But the Bible says, as a believer, you are freed from those chains. So now you cooperate with the Spirit's work of righteousness to say, No, I don't have to live that way anymore. That's why we love to sing the songs that speak of Well, we'll sing one this morning. Long my imprisoned soul was there in chains, but this light of the gospel shone there, and my chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee, Wesley wrote. I don't even like some of Wesley's understanding of sanctification. He got into a little bit of perfectionism, but he understood the heart of the gospel. And the Wesleyan revival in England wasn't too far off from the the great Puritan emphasis there of understanding the beauty of deliverance from sin. We're free, and that freedom means. If I sin this week, I only have one person to blame, and it's not that devil somewhere, it, it, it's me. I chose to go back for a moment of slavery. It's funny, this is the story of the Old Testament Israelites. They're freed from Egypt after hundreds of years of slavery, and they're not in that, on that walk to the promised land for even a month when they're saying things like, oh, that we were back in Egypt. It was so much better there. And we look at them and we think, you people are, are have. why did God even bring you out of Egypt? Those Israelites are horrible. How could they forget 400 years of shallow, sandy graves of their loved ones who died as slaves to Egypt, and they're only a month removed from it, and they're, Complaining to God and saying, I wish I was back in Egypt. And yet, that's the picture of the Christian who is freed from sin and yet chooses to look at pornography, chooses to, to give an angry response to their spouse, chooses to fudge a little on the timesheet and have a poor work ethic, chooses whatever sin we're tempted with. It's the same story of the Old Testament saying, oh, I wish I was back there. That was the good life. When we know deep down that is just not true. That was the life of agony. That was the life of death. That was the life of bondage. So the battle is on. And this topic of sanctification is a good one for us to study because I think at times... We do tend to just think, well, I'm doing the best I can, and if God wants me to be something more, he's going to do it. Where do you start with that? It's like, well, God is going to do it. But equally, God wants you to do something about it. But the great middle ground is if God has put his spirit in you, then you should have a heart that wants to do that. Because you're remembering, I was once the slave in Egypt. But I've been set free. Why would I go back to that? When God has promised me the good of the promised land. And he says, this is the way, walk in it. Sanctification is by faith in the perfect righteousness of Christ. And so this morning, really, the study of sanctification is just a fresh look at the portrait of Christ in scripture to us. We see him and we're, we're reminded that, oh, that's our savior and rescuer. Oh, yes. And he's my example and teacher. So now I've been rescued. I've been saved. I've been washed. So so I, I know sanctification because I know what it is to be washed from sin. Now I need to know sanctification in that ongoing cleansing because I do kind of get splattered with the junk of the world all week long. And I, and I do battle the flesh. And I need to keep washing and keep washing and keep washing. But I do it with my eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and the finisher of my faith. The one who brought me into the faith is going to make sure I get all the way to the end. And on that journey, he just says, keep washing. Keep keep striving for the righteousness of Christ that is Possible because his spirit is in you. So yes, God does it, but we have our part. But let's do our part in in just grateful worship to the God who has saved us. Heavenly Father, there's a lot of ideas we've hit this morning on these big theological issues, but help us to come back to the simplicity of our justification. You've declared us righteous because we're trusting completely in the work of Christ. You've, you've called us saints, and, and deep down we want to argue with you on that and, and tell you we're not good enough to be saints. But that's because we're not fixing our eyes on Christ. So let us hear the title of saint and say thank you, Jesus, for saving my soul. Thank you, Lord, for making me whole, for making me free. Lord, show us Christ in all of his glory now and in the hour to come, we pray in his name, amen.